productivity is important because I think it's the side of the sort of equation that you can continue to grow over a long period of time. One refrain you might hear is, well, why don't we just grow the number of software developers? And there's all sorts of initiatives out there to do that. And I'm very much in favor of all of those things. There are just soft or hard limits on the number of people who can be software developers, the proportion of our economy that can be software developers, the proportion of the labor force, I should say. And if you're not careful, it's easy to sort of grow the number of developers and actually see productivity decline. Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm your host, Paul, and today we have Namdi Irregular with us. He is a partner at Lightspeed, really into tech, self-taught programmer. He's here to share the riches of knowledge with us of one of the works he's put out called The Programmer's Manifesto. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you on. So what is the, the whole purpose or the ethos behind this work that you created? What was like your goal when you were setting out on this journey? And, and what is it in 30 seconds for people who aren't familiar? Yeah. So the, um, the, the manifesto is um, a three-part series I wrote um, almost two years ago now that talks about kind of developer productivity and why I think it's such an important you know, topic to focus on. And, um, you know, for context, I've been a self-taught programmer my entire life, you know, PHP websites back in the day, a lot of like Python and other things, uh, modifying video games and stuff as a kid. And, um, you know, I've become sort of obsessed with technology over the years. And, you know, I like to make these sort of like analogies between, um, you know, the industrial revolutions of the past where you had these like factories and, labor was the key input to those factories and you know that labor was oftentimes not super well treated you know it was generally considered low skilled you know what have you wasn't very well paid to uh you shift forward to today and you know everything is software you know software is eating the world as they say and every company is becoming a software company on some level and so the the, the unit of labor now is like the software developer and they are like you know very well regarded in Silicon Valley. They're sort of like the gods among us. Um, you know, it's a very scarce resource. They're very well treated and they're very well paid. And so, you know, anything that can make them more productive is inherently, you know, quite valuable. And so I kind of wanted to explore those those ideas in, in the piece and combining both like the technical side of things, which I really enjoy, and also the kind of almost like economics of this stuff, which I'm also a huge Right. Yeah, this is interesting because we're we're taking, I mean, this is a tech podcast. We talk about repos and open source projects. And now we're stepping into the, the economics realm because, I mean, one, one of the things I'm so excited to get into this, but one of the things you mentioned is how you think about productivity as the production function. And I was like, oh, the dog Cobbless, dog Cobbless, Cobb Douglas. We were like in in the cryptocurrency world. You find this everywhere, and it's like naturally occurring and in, in describing to a pretty decent model, like a bunch of systems that are out there. So I'm really excited to get into that and relate. Wait, is that true in, in crypto? Like Cobb Douglas comes up a bunch. Oh, it, it comes up all the time. Like it, this manages entire economies at scale right now as we're speaking. It's it's quite fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's popping up again in places. I was just like. Who would have known? Here it is. Um, yeah, so one, I mean, 
all right, these developers are well-paid, well-regarded. We can't disagree on this. They made a TV show about them that's literally called Silicon Valley. So why do you want to focus on increasing productivity if, if, if that's the case? Because they're already well-paid. They're already well-treated. Maybe this kind of will foray us a little bit into the economic side. Why is productivity so important to you? Yeah, pr- productivity um, is important because I think it's the side of the sort of equation that you can continue to grow, you know, over a long period of time. And what I what I mean by that is like, if you think about like, you know, this notion of like a production function, and you think about like, it having two elements in, in one kind of version of it, you can think about the number of developers that the ecosystem employs, and uh, the productivity of those developers, and you multiply those two things together. And that's how much software you get out on the back end. And so one refrain you might hear is like, well, why don't we just grow the number of software developers? And there's all sorts of initiatives out there to do that. And I'm very much in favor of, of, of all of those things. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I, I would love more people to be technical. I'd love more people to write code. I'm not, I'm not opposed to any of that. But there are just soft or hard limits on the number of people who can be software developers, the proportion of our economy that can be software developers, uh, the, the proportion of the labor force, I should say. And if you're not careful, it's easy to sort of grow the number of developers and not and, and actually see productivity decline. You know, I think there's this really interesting um, book called The Mythical Man Month, which is like very well known amongst developers and project managers and whatnot that talks about this notion of the sort of this indivisible unit of work that you get down to at one point and that can't be subdivided further. And so growing the team doesn't help you necessarily get the work done any faster. And it's easy to have too many cooks in the kitchen and adding more cooks at that point just makes the cooking time longer. And so um, I think everyone who's worked on a software team knows what I'm referring to here. And so I think we have to be very careful about just sort of throwing more people at the problem, whatever that software problem is. And we have to always keep in mind like the productivity side of things. And so that's why I tend to to emphasize the productivity side. It's not to say there shouldn't be more developers too, but. So your argument is we can kind of say the total output of the software uh, world right now is the amount of labor we have times the productivity. And so the argument is sort of like, we're getting to this point of, the marginal product of labor is vastly lower than the marginal product of productivity. So we should be focusing on this parameter if we want to make. Yeah, ba- ba- basic. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, yeah, exactly. So if you just if you just grow the number of developers, just sort of unthinkingly, uh, you know, the marginal product of that the additional unit of labor is not going to be very high. And so we, we need to treat the the, the productivity of labor as its own thing that's worth optimizing and worth like growing over time as opposed to uh, just the, 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 the total kind of labor force, so to speak. And another interesting thing you mentioned was that, uh, you know, we can continually, continuously improve that productivity. It's sort of like a learned wisdom that we have as a industry. And if you look back to how we made websites and how long it took to make something move on the page now, now we have all these frameworks and they abstract a lot of things away for, for good or bad. We can get into that. And then um, we, we can make, I can make a React website homepage in an afternoon these days. Like that is vastly different from the, the PHP <laughs> days like 10 years ago. So yeah, stepping into the frameworks a little bit, do you think that frameworks are a linear add to that marginal product of productivity and why or why not? Yeah, this is, this is a good question. 
And um, yeah, there's probably a nuanced answer that says it kind of depends on the framework and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, look, I would say that there's no shortage of, you know, uh, web frameworks out there. I've used many of them. I've invested in some of them. I'm very supportive of the continued development of that ecosystem. Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of them don't necessarily move the needle much compared to what's come to date. And um, at the same time, there's this tendency in web development to kind of like the new shiny object to want to try out the new framework or whatever it is. And there's always this question of like, is it actually moving? Is all that actually moving the needle forward? I think those are all very fair questions to ask. You know, I think there's one version of wisdom here, which is basically you know, use whatever you're kind of most comfortable with. Don't feel like you need to go learn the new thing just because other people are. Uh, I think that's roughly right. And that's true, not just in web development, by the way, that's true in just across software development in general. Um, that's just productivity one-on-one. Right, yeah, right. exactly. Um, but, you know, unless someone's pushing the ball forward, the ball doesn't get moved forward. So there's sort of a balance there. So what about, I mean, if we're talking as well about what we're actually producing in the units that we're talking about. You were you mentioned the mythical man month and breaking down how do we classify these like units of work and how do we, you know, does this framework actually add, does it subtract? So there's this whole concept of intangibles that that you mentioned when I was looking at your work. What is an intangible and how does that relate to what we would consider that that which is tangible that we can kind of like wrap our heads around? Yeah, so this is an important distinction, and it's increasingly important as our, our economy becomes increasingly, you know, kind of digital. But, um, you know, an intangible, in contrast to a tangible, is just some form of output that uh, doesn't necessarily have a physical representation. Typically, it centers around ideas or things in our head um, or things that we might have written down somewhere, but again, don't really have a sort of physical representation. So, like, for example... Uh, you know, a patent that you file is a is a sort of intangible in the sense that, um, you know, the patent itself is not the thing that the patent is describing. The patent is its own sort of mental representation of an idea or a product or what have you. And because humans have certain mental capabilities, we're able to thinking about these things as separate from the actual physical thing it kind of represents. Um, and it has sort of sep- its own value, its own kind of production function, so to speak, you know, what have you, you know, software also falls in this category, you know, software at the end of the day is just an idea that somebody had and they eventually wrote down into a code editor and then it happens to happens to to run or compile. Um, It's not a a physical object out in the world. Um, And the reason this is an important distinction uh, versus the tangibles um, is because what constitutes output or production in the, in the realm of intangibles is very different from the world of tangibles. So if I take like a tangible example, uh, a, a car, uh, you know, two cars is better than one car. You know, you can, we can debate, is, is it 2x better than one? Is it 1.9x better than one? But it's unambiguous that two cars, but two replicas of the exact same car are better than one or, or roughly you know, twice as valuable as one. Um, and that's true of most tangibles. On the other hand, in the world of intangibles, you know, if I go get clone, you know, whatever repo, uh, you know, I've not, I've not added value to the world by get cloning a repo. Uh, the, the value was added when that code was originally written. And so the only thing that has value in the world of intangibles is novelty. So new ideas, new patents, new software. 
And so when you think about the world that way, you realize that it's very, very important to focus on how do we ensure developers can generate new software, you know, not merely sort of scale existing stuff, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like we're, it's, we can think of it as like the idea space is shrinking. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be, um, you know, the low hanging fruit could have been picked, you know, et cetera. I mean, yeah, the, the world of math is limitless. I don't know what the, the researchers are going to find out next week about how we can store information on God knows what. But, you know, at, at, a, at a fundamental level, the amount of things that we could like foray into computers for a week, I feel like the amount of change 10 years ago between 2012 and 2014 is way drastic than it is now. And that has a bunch of reasons. And and do you think Moore's law has anything to do with that or the speed of computers or the availability of computing? You know, it, it's probably all of the above. Um, Moore's law is definitely a core pillar of that, which, you know, for people who, I mean, most people probably have heard of it, but, you know, it's the idea that, you know, these chip manufacturers, these semiconductor manufacturers can fit in you know, more transistors on every computer chip every year. And there's, you know, roughly doubles, you know, on some sort of regular, you know, cadence. Um, and that has been generally true historically. Maybe it's slowed down a little bit, but it's still kind of ongoing. And, you know, if that's the core driver of how capable computers are, then, you know, on some level, as long as that continues, then our, our computers will get, you know, more capable over time. Um, and so that that's, that is one driver of it. There also are these sort of paradigm shifts in how, software is is getting created that have led to kind of a very quickening pace so some people talk about this notion of software 1.0 2.0 3.0 and i forget exactly what all those mean but the big shift has been from thinking about software as something that is something that uh you know a human has to write the full application logic themselves versus a world where a human writes a machine learning algorithm and that machine learning algorithm is sort of the core assets, so to speak, and then it is figuring out for different domains and different situations, what is the actual work to be done? What is the actual, uh, you know, code to be run, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, you do a whole podcast on the implications of that. Um, but I think that in the, the world of AI, et cetera, is, is, is a big, big accelerant. Um, I think more people just getting access to computers and whatnot is another big accelerant. And then there's sort of this combinatoric explosion that happens when more people get access to more compute and there are more sort of paradigms for for kind of assembling that compute um you know you know people throw around this term singularity but even well in advance of getting to a singularity things start to accelerate and so um yeah it's kind of kind of wild times yeah we're in it now so and, and we're i don't know if you you're in how much you research into the AI stuff, but we're getting companies. I mean, this, this is not a new company on the block. It's been around for a little bit, but these analog chips that are processing AI speeds at just like 10, a hundred fold that we could ever imagine on the digital scale. It's like, yeah, it's coming. Yeah. I wonder how it's going to affect our, uh, our output and our productivity. I mean, we're getting a taste of it now with uh, code pilot on GitHub. Uh, have you, have you played around with that much? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, and, you know, I probably had a healthy dose of both skepticism and excitement about it uh, when it was first announced. You know, there have been some things like tab nine, et cetera, that existed, you know, prior to that. But, um, 
you know, Copa is very good. I think I've been very impressed with its capabilities and it's only getting better over time. And I think we'll get to a point, even though I know a lot of developers are, don't love these tools. I think we're going to get to a point where it's just going to feel like autocomplete on your iPhone, where it's strictly better than not having it. It's not perfect, but it's definitely just a better experience and it becomes sort of just a default thing on all the time. But the autocomplete's never going to finish your sentence, you know? Um, like co- code pile is never going to like architect your thing for you, but it's going to, it's going to get you along. I, I, you know, don't, don't, don't sleep on it, man. I mean, uh, what are these, um, Replit announced some interesting you know, AI powered features, uh, a, a few weeks ago that looked very impressive and, uh, and they have a lot less, fewer resources than they get, than GitHub does. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I think with these sorts of things, betting against, the kind of upside technology case has typically not worked out <laughs> well. Um, you know, maybe you can get it right in terms of things take longer than other people think they will, but they generally happen on some timeline. I totally agree with what history has shown us. The only voice in my head that wants to disagree with you, though, is there's this there's this uh, law or corollary. I I don't know what it's called or who wrote it, but it's essentially that humans always overestimate the benefit of technology and underestimate like the cost. And when we're doubling our transistors and you're telling me, Oh, like I remember when my mother got her first phone and it could take a picture. And I was like over the moon. Like I I was like, I can't believe that's possible. And now I'm like, there's a Netflix movie filmed on the iPhone 12. So, you know, that's a very exciting time to be alive. But if we're getting to the point, maybe that like magic might fade a little bit. And we might, for you know, lack of a better phrase, be brought back to our senses about what's actually important. But now we're getting into some hippie stuff, so I don't, I don't want to go too deep. Uh, yeah, it, fair, fair points. And yeah, there's a, there's a, again, it's like a whole podcast that you could do or more on on that specifically. Uh, I will say, like, I very much hear the point, especially with you know mental health and all these things that people are talking about these days. There is an element of this that has been, I think, destructive on that level. You know, for sure. Um, you know, on the other hand, I just, I think about places like outside the U.S. where like, you know, uh, where these, the, 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 the kind of economic output that's created by all this stuff is still very much on the strictly positive uh, marginal benefits, let's call it. And so like, I think in the U.S., yeah, maybe we're on the diminishing part of the curve, but other people are not. And so, you know, there's still uh, a strong benefit to this stuff, I think. That's a very fair point. It's like, if you, yeah, we're in a bubble here in terms of how much does technology interact with our lives and how does it affect it? We're, we're kind of the guinea pigs, which is, which is fine. Um, and, and another cool thing about CodePilot um, that I want to pick your brain about too is, you know, we, it, it sources a lot of its diffusion capabilities to produce these models and these, and these texts based on what other users are uploading to GitHub, right? So its knowledge base is always improving. It's always like being updated. And do you, like, do you think like humans are creative? There's some people that think like our creativity even comes from other dimensions. Like there's some brain research out there. They're like, you know, we see neural signals come in and then we don't see them go out. Like they're going somewhere and we don't know where they're going. And so could a singularity exist if that like external force or external pressure like is always seeding some sort of originality? from the human spirit that like needs that feed up from the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. So I mean, there are, you could take this 
I, there are, I could see many sides to this. On the one hand, um, you know, if I take, for example, the um, a lot of the generative AI stuff that's happened, you know, this past summer and the past year or so, um, you know, the inputs to that have all been sort of human visual creations, you know, art, you know, photography, you know, et cetera. And in that sort of domain, yeah, I think that humans have to be the input on some level because that's how we're, what, what the models generate back is going to be evaluated by humans. And what humans are really trying to get back is something that looks like a human created it, which means that the model needs to be trained on things that humans create. So it's sort of, because it feeds back into the loop. It feeds back, yeah. And, and these things tend to degrade if they start learning on stuff that they themselves created. They start to degrade very quickly for very subtle reasons. Um, and so that's one side of it. Now, there's another side of it, which is if I look at all the stuff that uh, OpenAI has done um, and DeepMind around, you know, being able to, in the case of DeepMind, you know, AlphaGo and, and you know, all these things. The, you know, they eventually got these models to the point where they were never actually learning from human games. They were just doing self-play and all the only input that they needed were the, like the rules of the game, so to speak, like where the checker pieces or the go pieces or the chess pieces could go or not go. And that was a discrete finality that they could evaluate on. Yeah, exactly. There's something discrete about the search space and the different moves that you can make. And so you can just do that in a closed loop, no human input required. And a lot of what it gets out at the end of the day does look like very human-like play but it never actually trained on human input. So I think there will be domains where these models will be in a closed loop, able to just sort of generate very interesting behavior. I think there'll be other areas where they will require, um, you know, some level of human input. Right. I, I feel like after riffing on this a little bit, I feel the same way because in GitHub, we'll go there and there's some open source projects that are like improvements, their frameworks or productivity boosts. And that's kind of like this closed loop productivity sort of oriented thing like you can test does this give you better response times with like a random basket of requests that you do like god, god knows what um but there's also creative things like people posting on github that's like hey look i found a new new way to like glitch out a monitor and make like a weird static art like that's completely original and and speaking of which if you're enjoying the podcast we have like i mentioned earlier we have like open source creators come on and talk about their projects what they're working on and all the cool features so Come through, we'll talk about all the things they're making, share some features, and we'd love to see you on some other episodes. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, back to the creative part of GitHub, that that sort of, it's going to be a bilateral system, I guess, because you're going to need to have the input and you're also going to want to iterate and complete it. I have a hard time believing that it's going to be like completely singularity and closed loop, but I'm very interested to see where it goes. Um, what do you think is the number one drain that is sort of like unnoticed on our productivity as developers? Um, yeah, I don't know how much it's noticed or unnoticed, but it, it definitely doesn't get enough attention, which is just the roughly like 40% of developer time that goes towards maintaining, you know, existing code. You know, going back to my point about productivity in the world of ideas and intangibles being related to new stuff versus just more of the old stuff. Uh, if, you know, if 40% of developer time is just maintaining existing code, that's a lot of effectively lost productivity that's going into, you know, technical debt, you know, bad code and, you know, other sort of things that sap your time as a developer. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that when they get into software development, they think they're just always going to be working on new features and new cool stuff. And then it turns out they're mostly, you know, taking like Jira tickets. 
Um, and so, <laughs> oh yeah, there was a time we all thought we were going to be doing that. No, right. Um, and so I, I think like finding ways to either reduce the time it takes to maintain code or just create code that breaks less in the first place is, um, is, is it's like an area worth spending time on. And it's not that I have like particular solutions per se, but, um, I think it's, I think it's super, super important. And there was, there was actually a research paper that I think I mentioned in the manifesto that talks about this, that if you were to measure the, uh, the value add that a software developer provides to their organization as measured in terms of the value of the company they work for their like market capitalization or something that a developer that's focused purely on maintenance is actually probably destroying value in totality destroying value is in their wage minus the, 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 the actual productivity that they're generating is, you know, they're not covering their own cost versus, you know, a developer that is actually doing a healthy balance of new and, 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 ma- and maintenance stuff, um, you know, certainly is generating value. So uh, there is some some data that backs this up. I'm just curious for my own selfish purposes now, like what does that data look like? Who collects that data and how can you evaluate something that to me feels so like ethereal? Yeah. And this is this is where like the econ part of me gets excited. But like it's, it's sort of hard to grok for most people because there is a little bit of um, – well, one, there's these like econometric, like statistical methods that people use to sort of extract these, uh, you know, co- co- you know, values and coefficients and whatnot. And then there's like a little bit of a like, uh, let's just say, you know, there's a whole industry of economic research that if you just describe to the average person, they would just say that doesn't like that just doesn't make sense. Like you guys are doing stuff that's, you know, it doesn't pass a smell test, but among economists, it's considered to be totally fair. So let's just say it's a combination of those two things is how you get to those kinds of numbers. But um, it's typically economists, typically they're working at an institution of you know, higher learning or like the Federal Reserve or something like that. And they get access to these data sets, oftentimes from like public companies that disclose some of this stuff in the able to kind of extract these sorts of insights. But yeah, I, I would I was expecting you to say that developer is definitely paying for themselves because if they don't have the product they're the company is going to die and then. Hey, that's how I felt when I was maintaining legacy code. I was like, wow, I'm so important. <laughs> I'm the most important person in the world, yeah. <laughs> so would you say that if you're on a team developing every minute of, or that's too small, let's say every hour, easier to wrap your head around, of like, I'm going to I'm gonna do this because we just need to like get it out and I'm going to come back to it later. Every hour is a one to one plus X spend later down the line because another team, another, maybe it's you who wrote it needs to like re get into that mental context. They need to reevaluate what needs to be done. Would you say that's a general truth or do you think differently? As in like the overhead that comes from like context switching or? Yeah. Tech debt. And then like, uh, since we're talking about maintaining code, like going back and maintaining that, fixing it, like putting in the right logging, um, whatever it might be. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I don't, yeah, I think that's, that's probably a good way to think about it. And like the X, I don't know exactly what that number would come out to, but in terms of like, if you push new code, there's sort of this long tail of maintenance to that code that is sort of, um, that sort of happens over time. And that, you know, could be the next year, two years, five years, depending on how long that code actually gets, gets used. And so it is important to like, for every commit to, to the main line, like, you know, just making sure is this actually necessary and what headaches could this cause down the line? Cause it's, 
um, you know, software is not something that just exists at a point in time. It's a system that exists over time. And so everything you do has kind of long-term implications. So you, you would say in general, you always want to take, I'm going to do it later with a grain of salt. Cause that in general is going to play out to a one plus X. We don't know what the X is, but it's going to be more than one probably. Yeah. I think these are games like what your discount rate is and, <laughs> but uh, yes, there's an X and it's not, the X is not zero. You know? I, I just, it's a hard problem for, I mean, me, even if I'm doing a person, I guess a personal project, it matters less, but you just want to, I'm a big cowboy. I love cowboying stuff up into the, pro, into prod and then like hating myself like six months later. Um, <laughs> but it's also depends on the business you're in. Cause sometimes that's necessary. Like you can also document something cause you're like, Hey, these five rest endpoints, this is my company. And then like six months later using GraphQL, I don't know, just like something that's not rest. And then all your documentation time went out the window. Um, so it's a balance. I guess it depends on your group. It depends on your company. It depends. It, there's a lot of things. There's no single, single truth here. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Um, I think as the organization gets larger, I think it gets harder to do the cowboy thing, but um, yeah. Yeah, it gets harder or it just gets like more and more frowned upon and people won't let you do it, won't let you do it even, even how hard you want to do it. Um, so, all right, if, if we want to hone in a little bit on what are things that people can do to increase their singular productivity like if somebody's listening to this and they're like i i feel inspired like this is the parameter i want to improve on are there resources that you would typically point people to or if you're consulting for a company point that leader to to give to their employees you know it's um it's 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 a good question um and i'm usually not in a position to sort of tell people exactly what they should be doing on an individual level i mean i will say you know the point i made earlier about like work in the language or framework or whatever that you're most comfortable with is always sort of good generic kind of advice for, you know, personal, you know, development productivity. Um, you know, I think, um, it's funny. There are certain things that you wouldn't think about as being personal that are personal that are actually more team level, but that enhance individual productivity. So like, for example, this like notion of, um, I mentioned earlier at the start that the, the, if you put too many developers to work on the same sort of thing, you know, the marginal products of that last developer, you know, starts to approach zero. Well, one thing is just don't be that last developer. <laughs> don't let your manager or whoever throw you on something that already has too many people on it. Like, you know, be thoughtful about the kind of projects that you apply yourself to and where you can be most like individually impactful. You know, some of the biggest gains the productivity come from just picking the right thing to work on in the first place, as opposed to like how you, how you go about working on it, if that makes sense. Um, those would be some examples, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think those two are huge. I think a lot of times people will try to reach for the fastest running framework or the, uh, the most talked about one. And it just bring us back to what we said at the beginning of what you said at the beginning of the podcast, use the one you're most comfortable with. Like 99% of the time, it's fine, <laughs> even if it's Python. It'll be fine, like I promise. Uh, we, we have fast computers now for the most part. Um, so what about busy work? I'm really curious how you think about this because I feel like I have tons of busy work. I'm sure lots of developers out there feel like they have lots of busy work. Uh, what is busy work and how did we get to the point of having this thing that we call busy work that just feels like an eternal waste of my brain juice? 
Yeah, busy work is like a, is a very natural consequence of this shift towards knowledge work. And um, you know, I have an author that I really like called uh, you know Cal Newport, who writes a lot about you know deep work and the kind of modern knowledge worker and all the different ways in which that worker is being uh, hampered by. Um, sort of the way we've kind of unthinkingly ended up in where we currently are. And busy work is the core component of this. He sort of refers to busy work as shallow work and in contrast to deep work. And he kind of emphasizes that you should be spending as much of your time as possible on deep work and that it should be a carved out thing on your calendar that gets done every day, whether it's two hours of deep work or four hours or six hours of deep work, like whatever it is, it should be calendared. It should be sacred uh, because that's where you're most productive and that's where you're generating the most kind of differentiated value versus shallow work. You know, he kind of defines as basically anything you could train a new college grad to learn in a very short period of time (laughs) is basically shallow work. So, you know, email and, you know, slacking, messaging people and, you know, different kind of minor tasks that, they do have to get done on some level, but you should be doing them in the min- you know, smallest kind of time frame. And you shouldn't be allowing those things to impact your, your deep work time. The problem most people run into is that they intermingle these things too much. And so, um, you know, Paul Graham talks about manager versus like maker schedule or whatever. Even if you have the maker schedule, you don't have too many meetings. If you're constantly bouncing between writing code and writing email, you're, you're not maximizing your, your, your productivity at all. And so this is something you have to be really, I think, conscious of and um, proactive about protecting your kind of deep work time and not let the busy kind of like shallow work take over. You're actually deep work. You're actually producing something. You're like, produ- and, and that kind of brings me to this next thing. I wonder if you've heard of this concept, but um, there has been some research that's come out, I think, recently in the past year. I, I don't want to say two years. It might have been two years, but past year. Um, where some astrophysicists are saying, you know, the the next type of matter or phase of matter that is it the fifth phase that we're on now that we haven't really like grokked with is information. The n- the next phase of matter is information, and I'm a I'm really curious to, to 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 see what you think about that. But b relating to this example, if deep work like what you need to like what you really need to focus on is producing matter, you're actually making something that is wasn't there previously that now we as a collective, as a human race, like can now either learn if it's documented or do whatever you're actually producing this new phase of matter. Do you buy that? What do you think? Do you think information is, is sort of like a concrete like entity that takes up possibly even mass in the universe? Cause there's something inherently different between organization of matter information and the lack of. So one of the things about information that makes it really interesting is the fact that you can write it down in an equation in the same way you would write down sort of physics of other sorts into equations and do math on it and generate theories and whatnot. And Cloud Cloud Shannon was the sort of guy who started this whole kind of information revolution and showed that you could think about this stuff in a pretty rigorous way. And so I, I, I one part of me feels like that's like a subtle wink wink from the universe that like hey there's something here <laughs> there's something to this information stuff it's not just this uh, human concept but it actually has some sort of uni- universal kind of relevance and and meaning um you know the other thing that kind of gives me some it feels like a wink wink is 
if you look at all a lot of the theories about uh, uh, black holes, um, a lot of them do have to do with information and information being lost as it gets goes past the event horizon and falls into the black hole and the fact that you can't pull it out and light and causality and, and different things having to do with information and how it kind of passes between different parts of the universe. So again, feels like subtle hints that this, this information thing is important and relevant and could be as important as either, you know, phase of matter or uh, just sort of core concept of the universe. Um, you know, how we take that and relate it to like our daily lives, I think is always tricky when it comes to astrophysics and all this, all this, all this stuff. Um, but, um, but, but I, I will say though that, I mean, I, I think a theme of this conversation has been like our economy is moving more towards this sort of digital era and, you know, information ideas, these are all basically the same, you know, concept. That is a very large share of our like GDP effectively today of our economic output. It's not in measured in like stuff that has like mass and then you could weigh on a scale, but it's these like information and these ideas and different things. So I do think they're really, it's really worth understanding if you really want to understand how the world works today and how it's going to work going forward. It almost makes me uncomfortable when I try to understand it because it's just like such a non-intuitive idea that you're producing something, but it's also nothing. Um, it kind of brings me back to that intangibles thing is like, you know, it's, it's really nothing. And you're right. It is just a thought. It's just an idea, but is that idea actually like, does it have mass? Is it a real, is it tangible in some other vector or method of thought? Um, this is billiards talk. We're getting into like pool room talk (laughs) at this point. Uh, if people wanted to find out more about your, um, developer manifesto, where can they go online if they want to read it, watch it, talk about it? Yeah. Um, so you, you can you can find it in a couple different places. You can find it on my personal site, uh, who is Namdi, N-N-A-M-A-S-N-M-A-R-Y-D-I.com. You can find it. Um, I've given a talk version of it at a couple different you know, conferences over the years. Um, those are all on, on YouTube. Um, and uh, I also recently started a, a sub stack, which is just, all the same stuff I post to my personal site too. So if you prefer subscribing there, you can do that too. Uh, who is nomdi.substack.com. Yeah, uh, Substack, right? It's Substack, yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, Namdi, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to listen to this and be instilled with some existential crisis. And I apologize to those listeners, but it was really awesome to hear about this economy of programming scale. It's a weird thing. It's intangible, yet tangible at the same time. So I appreciate all your thoughts and your time. Yeah, man, no, no problem at all. And I'm, now I'm going to go down a rabbit hole figuring out how Cobb Douglas applies to crypto. Um, this, is, this is like a new thing. So, Oh, yeah. I'll send, I'll send you a link after. Okay. This is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcast. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome Pod Rocket stickers. 
So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts.